Here's everything you might have missed in Andor Episode 7. Welcome back, Cassian Fandors, to our weekly breakdown of Andor. After all Donnie's Eleven last week, Episode 7 is all about the aftermath of the heist heard around the galaxy far, far away. We're going to break it all down for you in just a moment, but in order to talk about this in detail, we have to spoil what happens in Andor Episode 7. So if you haven't seen it yet and that worries you, leave now while you still can. <laughs> Okay, let's get into it, shall we? While announcement doesn't quite hit the same white-knuckle excitement, anxiety, and stress of last week's episode, Andor does continue to ratchet up the stakes in the wake of the Rebellion's big robbery on Aldani. As Dedramiro so aptly puts it, what happened on Aldani isn't a robbery, it's an announcement. That's the title of the episode. And much of this episode revolves around the implications of said announcement. The Empire responds with greater cruelty, harsher penalties, and a heightened military presence to try and stamp out these pockets, pockets, pockets of rebellion. Buckets. Now the news is rapidly spreading across the galaxy, airing on the Holonet as we see in Cyril's mother's apartment. And as we see by the episode's end, it's made its way from Ferrix to Coruscant and beyond. Speaking of Cyril's childhood home, though, in his bedroom you can see that he has action figures of clone troopers, which is just adorable. Once again, Cyril starts his day with a big bowl of blue milk and Grogu puffs. They're for a growing boy. Much like Cassian bristles against a normal existence, so does Cyril. Instead of his dream career in law enforcement, Cyril's staring down the barrel of being a cog in the Imperial bureaucracy. His uncle gets him an interview at the Bureau of Standards, working in the Fuel Purity Department, where he basically sorts the bad numbers from the good numbers like he's on Severance. Except his Innie and his Audi are probably both space fascists, so f that guy. <laughs> at the Imperial Security Bureau, we learn the extent to which the Empire's responding to the attack on Aldani. The man delivering these updates may seem familiar, and that's because this is Colonel Wolf Yularen, who first appeared back in A New Hope and later became a recurring character during the Clone Wars. He also went on to work for the ISB, as we see here, where he tried to ferret out traitors in the Senate. Good thing there were none of those, because they definitely wouldn't make bail. I said. He also apparently has Palpatine's ear, mentioning how the Emperor is signing what will become known as the Imperial Emergency Act. This legislation gives the ISB the power to basically act as the secret police that so many fascist empires love to have. And this is basically the Star Wars version of the Patriot Act signed in the wake of 9-11. That legislation expanded law enforcement's ability to surveil citizens, created harsher penalties for crimes classified as terrorism, and granted intelligence agencies far greater resources. As we'll see later in the episode, Dedra expertly exploits these newfound powers to access Imperial data from all over the galaxy. She correctly connects the dots, establishing that these aren't isolated incidents after all. Rather, they are pockets. Pockets. Pockets of rebellion. And boy howdy, have they been fomenting. Fomenting. And that's exactly what Luthen is hoping for. It's just like Leia tells Tarkin in A New Hope. The more you tighten your grip, Tarkin, the more star systems will slip through your fingers. Luthen has been assembling a network of rebel cells across the galaxy with Mon Mothma's deep pockets. Pockets. Thanks to her family's fortune. I'm not sorry. But Luthen's tired of hiding in the shadows. He admits they're trying to make a statement here, and their goal the whole time was to goad the Empire into overreacting. It's a strategy that will bring untold suffering to innocent people. But in Luthen's eyes, it's the only way that people will start waking up to the reality that the Empire is not all-powerful. 
In Luthen's shop, once again, we can see a number of Easter eggs. There's the tablet, similar to the one that Ezra Bridger used to access the world between worlds on Star Wars Rebels. There's the Utapowan monk cudgel, hearkening back to a planet best known for Obi-Wan Kenobi's infamous greeting. Hello there. We can also see Starkiller's armor from Star Wars The Force Unleashed, what appears to be an anti-ox mask, the type worn by Jedi Master Plo Koon, a Jedi Temple Guard mask, and as many of you pointed out previously, a Gungan war shield. In the back room, once again, you can also spot what appears to be Indiana Jones's whip encased in carbonite. And while Luthen is still on Cloud Nine after the mission's success, loose ends do need to be tied up. Back on Aldani, Cinta is following her orders. She is lying low, despite the fact that an Imperial Star Destroyer is also flying low over the planet. But Cassian could potentially be a problem for Luthen, so he sends Clea to handle his dirty work. We see just how intense security measures have become. We see a group of stormtroopers standing watch at a train station and a sign in Orbesh reading carrier chain code. As you may remember, chain code is a type of hard-coded identification we first learned about on The Mandalorian. The person that Clea goes to meet, though, is a much more posh-looking version of Vel, who correctly guesses that they want Cassian dead. And that's a sentiment shared by many people back on Ferrix who evidently blame Cassian for their fair mining colony, now being firmly under Imperial rule. Neither Marva nor Bix seem particularly thrilled to see Cassian, but that's because they mostly know it's not safe for him there. As for Cassian, we get a deeper understanding of his hatred towards the Empire. We find out what exactly happened to Clem, Marva's partner and Cassian's adoptive father. In a flashback, we see when the Empire was first arriving on Ferrix. Clone troopers march down Rick's road and rabble-rousers rail rebellious refrains at these invading troops. Clem tries to calm them down but winds up getting blamed for this, publicly executed and then left to hang rotting all winter long. It's a moment that's traumatized both Cassian and Marva for years. For Cassian, it hardened him, perhaps causing him to take even greater risks without his father there to temper his actions. For Marva, it numbed her to the world. But now, thanks to Cassian's actions on Aldani, Marva feels alive again, alive with the spirit of rebellion. So it looks like Jyn Erso is onto something in Rogue One. Rebellions really are built on hope. And while not as important of a revelation, it's also nice to know that the iconic shave and a haircut knock does exist in the galaxy far, far away. This is especially useful in case you're ever trying to find Roger Rabbit hiding deep undercover. Back on Coruscant, Mon Mothma is making Mon Movemas at her cocktail party. The person she identified as being able to help this nascent rebellion isn't Bail Organa or Princess Leia or anyone that so many of us speculated that it might be. Rather, it's Tay Colma, a childhood friend of Mon Mothma's who works at a large bank on her homeworld of Chandrilla. Mon Mothma needs help accessing her family fortune undetected so she can keep funding rebel operations under the guise of a charitable organization. And she'll need the subterfuge too, given that people like the Grand Vizier are keeping tabs on her. The Grand Vizier is yet another member of the Imperial Ruling Council, serving as the main intermediary between Palpatine and his other cronies. While Mon Mothma's searching for more allies, Cassian is searching for more Revnog and Pizos, whatever those are, on what appears to be Space Florida. Cassian's been lying low under the very believable moniker of Keith Gergo on the beachy planet of Nyamos, which feels suspiciously like someone tried to come up with a sci-fi name for Miami. Bienvenidos a Nyamos.
It's also a planet under the Imperial yoke, patrolled by Shore Troopers, the variant we first saw on Scarif in Rogue One. Also, there's Viper probe droids and KX series security droids. Unfortunately, the one that Cassian meets isn't nearly as friendly as K2SO, even though he does want to hang out. Hang. No, no, he means what? <laughs> And if that wasn't bad enough, Cassian soon learns exactly how much harsher he and the Rebels made things for average Joes like Keith Gergo. In the Imperial Kangaroo Court, we see rap sheets in Oribesh reading failure to follow Imperial command and anti-Imperial vandalism. As for good old Keith, his card reads assaulting an Imperial officer, a crime that used to get you only six months in jail, but now it carries a six year sentence in Imperial prison. As we know from his time on Aldani, Cassian has done hard time before, but I don't expect he'll be locked up for very long. After all, we saw him in the trailers locked up in that white-looking hexagonal prison. But still, it's brutal that no matter where he goes in the galaxy, the Empire finds a new way to give Cassian grief. Or should I say, give Keef grief. But as for the question of how he'll escape and if Marvel was lying about his sister not really being out there, we'll just have to wait and see. Now, one last detail worth mentioning is the name dropping of Ord Mantell during the ISB meeting. This was a major hub for the Black Sun crime syndicate during the Clone Wars, and it was also the site of a mission for the Bad Batch during the Imperial era as well. Anyway, folks, there you have it. That's everything we spotted in Andor Episode 7. We'll be back next week with another breakdown of all the details that you might have missed, but for now, tell us what did you think of this episode? Did you spot anything that we missed? Okay, can I speak now? No! Let us know in the comments below, and for the latest and greatest in the world of pop culture, make sure you stay tuned to Nerdist.com.